Ahe Mysteries, investigated by Patrick Muirhead, inspired by real events on a remote tropical island, but all characters and action depicted are imaginary. Time of Innocence, Episode 6. Shortly before I reached the track to our beach house, my phone rang. It was Antoine Lavigne, the general manager of Cateau Noir, requesting a discreet favour. He sounded agitated and dismayed that the publicity nightmare created by the suspicious deaths of two of his guests was now the relentless topic of discussion in the resort staff canteen all across the island and further afield besides. The police, he said, had failed to supply an adequately plausible explanation for the tragic events, fueling increasingly fevered speculation. So he'd taken the matter into his own hands and was mounting a damage limitation exercise. He wanted me to meet Dougie Summers, the travelling companion of the dead sisters, with the American's blessing. Hoping for swifter closure to a commercially costly misfortune, he insisted, for the sake of appearances, that our encounter should look serendipitous. I found Dougie reclining on a sun lounger on the sand behind the resort, barely a beach towel's length from a police cordon still in situ around what was manifestly now a crime scene. Next to Dougie's extravagantly oiled form was a highball, its shade reminiscent of brake fluid, garnished with a glacé cherry and a paper umbrella, resting on a low table at his side. He tugged down the rim of his sunglasses, appraising me as I approached. The British Broadcasting Corporation's finest. Well, he said, I'm honoured. I dropped my notebook onto the vacant lounger beside him, peeled off my polo shirt to expose my more corpulent, though more naturally tanned blubber, and surveyed the near-deserted shore. Compared to crowded, confusing London, Mahe was indeed another world. It's been a few years since I left the BBC, I said. I'm freelance now. And Dougie, I'm so sorry for your loss. This tragedy must have come as a terrible shock. Dougie repositioned his aviators and settled back. He was well prepared. You know, he said, the girls and me were friends since junior high. Small town, rich kids growing up. He rolled towards me abruptly, reaching for his cocktail, holding my gaze with defensive intensity. I have nothing to hide. Lois and Patty were my chosen family. You were close, I said. He sipped the emerald potion and toyed with its umbrella. Well, you can imagine how it was for a lonely young queen who didn't own a baseball mitt in a dumpster town like Cedar Lake, Ohio. I mean, we were three sisters, right? A holy trinity of sin. He laughed before checking himself. I'm just waiting around here until they release the bodies and we can go home. We always travel together. Antoine, the general manager, thinks you can help me, I said. Well, I hope you move faster than the cops in Seychelles, and here's the thing, nobody's really getting it. I know every damn thing about Lois and Patty, and something's wrong here, I just know it. Those girls, sure, they drank, smoked some blow, 
But this thing with codeine, morphine for Christ's sakes, I mean, no way. I proffered a pack of Winston's, but he shook his head. I'm good, he said, but you go right ahead, no judgment. I lit a cigarette and exhaled thoughtfully. You were seen arguing with one of my former colleagues, Bella Caddo. She's a local TV anchor. Bella, he said. Well, I can give you the number of a great therapist in Beverly Hills. She should call him up. That bitch is a mess. Sadly, I said, Beverly Hills isn't on any local bus routes, but I'll pass on your advice. So after you left school, you and the Bowski sisters kept in touch? Oh, sure. Like I said, we were family. They took care of me, and I took good care of them. They had property, the Bowski Family Trust Fund. I managed for them. You control their private affairs? I said, my curiosity suddenly piqued. Right, he replied. I'm their lawyer. I almost choked, struggling to conceal my surprise, revising my opinion of the gym-sculpted form beside me, shamed by my own unconscious bias. Dougie Summers, one of the last to see his friends alive, drew a weary breath. Harvard Law School, he said. Mergers and acquisitions are really my area. Corporate law. But I promise you, nobody, but nobody, does a more perfect French manicure than me, sweetie. So how about it? You're investigating what happened, right? Can you make things move any faster around here? You know how this stupid place works. Of the three individuals who were seen or known to be in the vicinity of the villa in the half hour or so during which Lois and Patty Bowski died, none had possibly more to gain by their deaths, nor more opportunity to kill than Dougie Summers. They were wealthy and he controlled their estate. Bella, on the other hand, had no discernible link to the sisters, less still a motive and the narrowest of opportunity. Nived Bandara, the villa butler, though humiliated, struck me as an unlikely poisoner. So Dougie's admission and the doubtful yet swelling body of evidence pointing towards Robbie made them the leading suspects. The cause of death, a respiratory failure brought on by a combination of drugs and alcohol, pointed to either a devastating mishap of self-medication, yet with no evidence, or unnatural death, possibly murder. But like a locked room mystery, the suspicious simultaneous deaths of two apparently healthy women had no obvious explanation. I conjured with this thought as I drove home. The afternoon's blistering sun was dipping towards the horizon, its alchemy transforming the ocean to gold as the moke bumped and rattled up the coast road through Oswallow. Within a few minutes I was parking at the cottage, our dogs, Linus and Lucy, untethered, sniffing me with intrigued curiosity and the delighted thrill of the pack reunited. A parked scooter indicated we had company, it was, frankly, a blessed relief, delaying the inevitable squabble that would surely follow my deceitful absence the previous night. I stepped onto the veranda and found Sebastian there with Rich, Robbie's brother, sipping sabres. The dogs need their walk, said Sebastian, if you have time in your busy schedule. I nodded a greeting to Rich, who raised his beer bottle.
I love your place, he said. It's amazing, you're so lucky. Hope you don't mind me dropping by like this. I just needed some company. I don't want to impose. No imposition at all, I said. You're just in time for a superb sunset. Sebastian eyed me censoriously, and I took the hint, slipping inside to change into my swimming shorts, gathering up the dog's leads as I did so. It was settled that he would stay behind by personal choice, clearing away the empties in brooding silence. I beckoned Rich apologetically to join me, Linus and Lucy leading the familiar way through the coconut trees with the same unalloyed joy of first-time discovery, their noses to the earth. We followed them onto the soft, parched sand beyond the tree line. We had the beach completely to ourselves, a tranquil palm-fringed strand straight from the pages of a holiday brochure. The sun was by then a perfect flaming semicircle casting an eerie, thundery light on a distant regiment of towering cumulus welling up on the horizon like an advancing army. We walked in companionable silence for a while along the shore, the dogs darting to chase crabs scurrying into their holes, rich soaking in the magic of the departing daylight, as lead chef of a luxury resort he rarely had the leisure to enjoy. Presently he spoke. Maybe Sebastian's told you, he said. My brother Robbie's been arrested. I stopped abruptly and scanned his face. Arrested, I said. He nodded. The police told me this afternoon, said Rich. Didn't you know? I'd heard they were looking for him, I said economically, quickly computing how much I should disclose, if anything, mindful of a moonlit promise I'd made. He'd done a runner, said Rich. These rumours have been going round about him. The police apparently found his bracelet near the guest villa at the resort. You know, where the two sisters were found drugged. But it doesn't make any sense. So is he in custody, I said. Rich rubbed his nose pensively. Yeah, they're keeping him in for questioning. It was stupid of him to run off like that, but Robbie, well, you know, he doesn't always think these things through the way he should. We're very different, me and my brother. But you don't think he killed those women, do you? I said. Nah, of course not. Not Robbie. He wouldn't hurt a fly. When we were kids, he was always the one bringing home orphaned puppies, injured tenrecs and the like, always interested in nature, collecting flowers and seashells and such. Sweet lad, my brother. He doesn't seem the violent type, I agree, I said. But then, said Rich, he got really into reggae, bought a guitar, grew those locks of his, started puffing wacky-backy and that. His words trailed away. We'd reached the granite boulders at the farthest point of the beach, after which the shore swept around out of sight into the next bay. He continued, There was this point in our lives, during National Youth Service or just after, when we just went in different directions. Robbie adopted the Rastafarian religion, didn't seem interested in the world outside Mahe. Me, I couldn't wait to get away. The dogs leaped, sure-footed, from rock to rock, and we clambered after them. Well, I hope to prove, I said, jumping a crevice, that despite the way things are pointing, your brother is innocent. We were all together that night at the museum until after midnight, remember? You heard the clock chiming. We all did. So there's his alibi. Just then, 
I lost my balance and slipped, my foot twisting painfully. You all right there? said Rich. Lean on me, take the weight off. He inspected my ankle. Doesn't look too bad, but if you get any swelling, just take a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory. Naproxen 250 milligrams twice a day, or ibuprofen 200 milligrams three times. Avoid acetaminophen and you'll have no worries. I'll be fine, I said, raising an eyebrow at the chef's impressively precise, almost clinical knowledge of pharmaceuticals. But thanks, no serious damage done. All the same, I should be getting back or I'll have more than a sprained ankle to worry about. A few minutes after waving off Rich on his scooter, I phoned the central police station asking for CID. Detective Chief Inspector Dugas kept me holding for several never-ending minutes listening to a gratingly repetitive ditty before taking the call. With an audible sigh, he listened patiently as I repeated what Robbie's brother, what all of us, had forgotten about the telltale chimes of the island's most familiar tourist attraction. I was there myself, I said, but I only remember the chimes when I was driving past the clock tower today. Hearing them brought it all back clearly. It means Robbie was with us at midnight on Saturday night. He couldn't have been in two places at once. Dugas was disdainful. So you would wish me to believe that your memory of the clock tower's bell provides this raster with a viable alibi, but it tells us nothing. We heard it striking midnight, I said, the presumed time of the deaths. Well, that might be so, if the clock were telling the correct time, said the chief inspector. Unfortunately, it is not. Perhaps you were unaware the clock requires servicing with replacement parts and is currently running some 50 minutes fast. It's been widely reported in the national press. No doubt you heard the chimes, but at that moment it was not midnight, nor anywhere close to it. Time, as they often say, waits for no man, most certainly not for a killer. I cannot concur that the clock provides an alibi. It was a deflating revelation, throwing Robbie's innocence into new and deeper doubt. He'd run away, a man clearly identified, carelessly leaving evidence behind. The actual timing of the party's breakup suggested that he could just have gone to the resort after all. Just as I was girding myself to sit down with Sebastian to help him see reason for my decision to agree to a covert rendezvous with Robbie at the equator the night before, there was a heavy crash accompanied by a terrified yelp and a commotion from inside the house. The dogs leapt from their daybeds, straining with excited curiosity on their leashes and obstructing the open doorway as I pushed past them to reach Sebastian. He stood trembling in the middle of the kitchen, the enamel lid of the rice bin clenched in one fist, a weaponized frying spatula in the other, gesturing in horrified disgust at the sight before him. I peered into the open bin, and there, resting on a bed of basmati, lay the decomposing corpse of a fat brown rat. Maggots were crawling from its orifices, its mouth agape. On the spectrum of wildlife intrusions that one learned to live with in the tropics, lizards and cockroaches cohabiting with human beings in even the most immaculate households, a rodent festering among the dry provisions was a repulsive novelty.
breathe, I said, relieving Sebastien of the fish slice and patting him gently. We'll cope, we'll bury it, and it'll soon be forgotten. Nothing that we can't deal with. Ri-ta-da-ri, ri-ta-da-ra, he intoned ominously. Le-ra, don't you ri? Yes, my love, it's a rat in our rice. He was reciting the same words of the Zygmo, scrawled on a paper scrap pushed inside a snail shell, whose existence I had never disclosed. You are the rat in someone's rice, he replied, his eyes staring upon the separating specimen that to him seemed to signify more than an alteration to our dinner plans. Someone has put this here on purpose. They found a way into our house, past the dogs. This is a warning, make no mistake. They've come to our house to tell us. Oh, don't be so melodramatic, I said. How could they possibly get in? They have a way. These are bad people, mon care. I've been trying to tell you, but you won't listen. You think you know better going out in the middle of the night? He swung around and glared at me. You've refused to believe what I'm telling you. And now this, you are the rat in their rights. You will die for spoiling someone's supper. But listen, I said, but was immediately interrupted. No, you listen, Sebastien finally snapped. Enough, arid mouvement. While there's still time before one of us gets badly hurt, this madness must stop. But I think I know who's behind this, I protested. And it's just a childish act of revenge intended to upset us, and it's working. There's nothing in this Grigri, it's just silly superstition. You may believe, but I've taken action to stop it. I've thought of the letter I'd written. It will stop, but I can't give up, my love. You must understand, I'm doing the right thing. I need to prove that Raz Robbie is an innocent man, if it's the last thing I do. Sebastian shook his head solemnly and turned away. The Mahe Mysteries was created by Patrick Muirhead and Lindsay Farabo. It was written, narrated, and produced by Patrick Muirhead. Music was by Isham Rath. It was an operculum media production recorded on location in Mahe Island, Seychelles. I'm Eliza, and I need you to listen to me. Have you ever felt so much that you don't know where to put it all, and you wonder if anyone would notice if you screamed? Because you want to. Scream for the ones they've hurt, the ones they've taken. Scream for yourself. These are my words, my story from my perspective. Because I know you'll hear other versions. Because I want you to have a chance to believe mine. Or at least hear it. If you're getting this, it's already over. But if one of you listens, really listens, it won't be for nothing.